This is our, our fourth sermon in our series on Philippians, uh, and it's a great letter. If this is your first time with us and you haven't been with, with us through the rest of Philippians, I'll just give you a, a 30-second recap of what's been happening so far in the letter. Uh, Paul is writing from prison, and he's writing to this church in Philippi, and he planted this church. This was the first church that he planted, and he loves these people. Uh, he wants to see the gospel take root in their lives, and he's got real joy when he writes about them, when he talks to them. Um, so he wants them to know in this first little bit that his imprisonment, his being in prison, is for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't mean that God has been thwarted. It doesn't mean that the good news about Jesus isn't true. Uh, it simply means that this is for the sake of Christ, is what he's saying. And then last week, he took up the issue of his own life or death, saying that he would prefer to depart and be with Christ, but he's actually going to choose life for the sake of the gospel in this place. So that's what's been happening so far in the letter. And then we get to this week, this amazing text, verses 27 to 30. And it's actually just one long sentence. We break it up into multiple sentences, but it's just one long sentence in Greek. It's kind of convoluted, a little bit confusing. Uh, but because it's only one sentence, we get to do a bit of a different kind of sermon. I just want to walk through these four verses. I'm not going to give you three points or four points. I just want to walk through these four verses, pointing out some things uh, that I think are, are really significant about this passage. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 1. If you've got an app on your phone, pull that thing up to Philippians chapter 1 because you're, you're going to need it. All right, so Paul has just finished talking about his own situation. And now he's going to switch, and he's going to start talking about the Philippians situation, what's going on with them. And he starts with one word. He says, monon, and it's, it's translated only in our text. And that's, that's okay, but it doesn't really give us the full meaning of it. Paul's using this word as a way of grabbing their attention, of making them forget everything that he's talked about so far. Uh, he's saying, essentially, it doesn't really matter what happens to me, whether I live or die, whether I come and see you or I don't. Only one thing matters, that your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only that your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But the question is, following that, what exactly does he mean by that? What does it mean to have a life that's worthy of the gospel? And the first hint, I think, comes to us in the words themselves that he uses. Uh, this let your manner of life is all translating one word in the Greek, one verb. Uh, and it's a word that's often translated in other situations, discharge your duties as citizens. Discharge your duties as citizens. It's derived from the word meaning city, polis. And uh, Philippi is a Roman colony, so it has special status in the empire. A lot of people in that, in that city would have been Roman citizens. So what the commentators think Paul is doing is playing off of their understanding of Roman citizenship using this word. So it could maybe be better translated... Um, let your, your life as a citizen be worthy of the gospel. Now, this Roman citizenship, it is hugely significant in this time. And you could compare it possibly to Canadian citizenship nowadays or American citizenship. I mean, we don't really think much of it, having this, this passport that we have in our filing cabinet at home or locked up in a safety deposit box or in your glove box. I don't know where you keep it. Maybe you keep it in your freezer. Um, but people all over the world would, would kill to have citizenship in Canada or citizenship in the U.S. It would mean an entirely different life. It would mean peace. It would mean freedom. It would mean potentially prosperity. It would also mean for those who are traveling, it means freedom to travel pretty much anywhere that you want to go. It's a, real, it's a real benefit to have this kind of citizenship. And even more so was the benefit that you would have from Roman citizenship in this world. But even though Paul is writing to a Roman colony, we can assume that not everybody in this church is a Roman citizen, 
Certainly they were not. And you can imagine the kind of tension that that would create within the community, of having some people who are Roman citizens who have all the benefits of that, and some people in that community who are not Roman citizens. And they would love to be, probably, have those privileges. And Paul writes to them, and he says, live as worthy citizens of the gospel of Christ. But what he's not saying is live as worthy Roman citizens of the gospel. He's actually proposing the idea of a different kind of citizenship. See, to be a follower of Jesus for Paul means to be a citizen of heaven. It means to have a counter-citizenship with a different seat of power, a different lord, a different capital. Uh, and in fact, this is the really controversial thing about this. It, it actually renders the other citizenship, it renders the Roman citizenship essentially invalid. It doesn't matter anymore that you have Roman citizenship because you are a citizen of heaven. You're a citizen of Christ. So to a church that's a mix of these types of people, people who have it and people who want it, uh, writing this to them, saying live as worthy citizens of the gospel would have been like dropping a bomb in the midst of that community. Now, that's all I want to say about that for now because Paul's going to pick up this language later in the letter. He's going to talk more specifically about citizenship and I'll let Alistair talk more about that when we get there. But for now, really all that matters is that Paul is saying uh, discharge your duties as citizens of heaven, worthily of the gospel. But one of the immediate problems that we run into with that phrase, live a life worthy of the gospel, is that we can start to think that that worthiness is something that we have to kind of trump up in ourselves, that we, are, we have to make ourselves worthy of the gospel. But that's not at all what Paul is saying. He knows that we are never worthy of the gospel. No one is. What he's saying is that you've already been incorporated into Christ's body. You've been made citizens already. You've been made worthy already by Christ's work on the cross. Our worthiness is not our own. It's always Christ's worthiness imparted to us. What he's simply saying then is that you have to live your life in a manner that aligns with the worthiness that you already have in Christ. Do you see the distinction there? One is trying to make myself worthy. The other is simply trying to have my life line up with the worth that's already mine in Christ. To go back to the illustration of Canadian citizenship, I mean, I didn't earn my Canadian citizenship. I was just born here, given that passport. Uh, but it comes with all those benefits. I didn't earn this. But we're, we're proud of it, in a sense, right? I remember going backpacking around Europe after university, and we stitched little Canadian flags on our backpack. We want people over there to know that we are Canadian, right? Um, but that also comes with a certain responsibility. We have a, a good reputation internationally because people have conducted themselves in a manner that's worthy of that citizenship. And it's the same kind of thing. If you're, gonna if you're going to be a citizen of heaven, if you're going to be made worthy of Christ in that gospel, then you have to have your life accord with that as well. That's what Paul's saying. In other words, it's live what in Christ you already are. Live what in Christ you already are. You've already been made a citizen of heaven, so live in a manner that's worthy of that citizenship. That's the way Christian ethics always work. Live what you already are in Christ. All right, so we know now the significance of this phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, or live as worthy citizens of the gospel, but we still don't know what that actually looks like in practice. But if we keep going in the letter, keep reading, Paul's going to follow up that phrase with this in verses 27. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
When Paul commands the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, it's these things that he has in mind. Standing firm, he says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything. These are the content of what it means uh, to live in a, a manner of life worthy of the gospel. So I want to spend a bit of time unpacking each one of those things. Standing firm, striving side by side, and not being frightened in anything. Uh, these are athletic terms that Paul is using, uh, military terms, standing firm, striving side by side. Uh, you get the sense of kind of a group of athletes or a group of soldiers working together for a common cause. And as I said, this is a letter written to a Roman colony, a, a whole bunch of people who were probably Roman soldiers at one point, and they would get this imagery. Paul's smart. He's playing off uh, what they know. And the image that kept popping into my mind as I was thinking about this was a tug of war. You guys all been part of a tug-of-war at some point in your life? I'm sure you have. You have to. This thing is a, a staple of camps and, and elementary schools the world over, I think. And if you don't know, we've got a rope out in the lobby. We're going to have one after the service. Um, that would be awesome if that was true, but it's not. It's not. I worked at camps all through undergrad and, and all through my, my time at Regent College as well. And I was working at UBC Ropes Course during my years at Regent in the summers. Uh, and we would often start off the program by dividing the group up into four, and we would have a four-way tug-of-war. Yes? How fun does that sound, right? There's like a metal ring in the middle, and there's four ropes attached to it. And you, you tie a bandana to the rope, and you try to pull your bandana outside of this big ring that's on the ground. Um, so we would do this most times. And you know what it's like when you have kids do a, a tug-of-war. You'd always have the biggest kid be like, yeah, I'm the biggest. I'm going to be the anchor. I'm going to go at the back. And then some other kid would argue, and he would say, no, no, I'm the biggest. I'm going to be the anchor. And you have a little bit of a fight. But eventually, you convince one of the kids that he should be strong, and he's going to go up front. One should go at the back, and it's all good. And then it begins, and it looks a whole lot like that. I mean, it's not coordinated. Kids are falling over. Kids are facing backwards, forwards. They've got it wrapped around themselves. They have no idea what they're, what they're doing. I mean, this is what I thought tug-of-war was for many years, until I was watching an episode of the car show Top Gear. I've talked about this before. This is like my favorite show, Top Gear. And uh, they were testing, this, this particular episode, it was, it's an old episode, and they were testing a, a Mercedes sports car, this little SL65. And I'm going to geek out for a second, but it had a huge engine in it, a V12 bi-turbo. Clement, you're loving this right now. I know you are. Uh, over 600 horsepower. I mean, this thing was a beast. And they decided to, to put it to the ultimate test, which is, of course, a tug-of-war. So they attach a rope to one end of the car, to the bumper, right? And they give the other end of the rope to a championship tug-of-war team. You didn't know that existed, did you? <laughs> a championship tug-of-war team. There are world championships. You have no idea. Go, on, go online. It's cool. Check it out. You can watch some tug-of-war teams do this. But anyway, they do this. They set it all up. The guys are holding the rope. And they look a lot like that, which is pretty awesome, I think. And you know, the driver gives it the beans, as they like to say on Top Gear. And it doesn't go anywhere, right? The, the guys, the team of tug-of-war guys are just destroying the car. And in fact, they actually start to pull the car backwards, this team of eight people. And I was just blown away by this, by this little scene in Top Gear. I didn't even know this was a sport. Now, the question is, why on earth am I telling you this? <laughs> the fact that I just really like to talk about Top Gear. Um, well, I think it is actually a really, really, really good illustration of what Paul is talking about here. These terms, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, standing firm. I mean, if this isn't an illustration of that, I don't know what is. But what he's saying is that you have to 
conduct our lives in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And that means standing firm, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The good news about Jesus, in other words, is to be the focus of my entire life. It's to be my one goal, my one hope, my one reward. So seeking him, glorifying him in everything I do should be my highest priority. And the reason he's using these terms is because this is not an individual sort of thing. This is a communal kind of command. If we look through this, this passage from Philippians, you'll notice that all of these words are plural words, all these pronouns. Only let your plural manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come and see you, plural, or I'm absent, I may hear of you, plural, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a plural kind of a thing. This is not individual. So while it matters how I conduct my life individually, what matters more is that we as a community conduct our lives in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying to conduct your life in a manner worthy of the gospel means to be unified. Now, don't misunderstand that. It doesn't mean that we have to be a homogenous church, a church where everybody looks the same, acts the same, thinks the same way. Of course, there's going to be differences of opinion, different preferences when it comes to stuff like music or how long a sermon should be or theological points or how frequently we should have communion. I mean, there's going to be different ways in which spiritual gifts are exercised in this community because we are a diverse people. We have been diversely gifted by the Spirit. But the vision for unity that Paul has in the New Testament is never a unity based on homogeneity, based on sameness. It's always a unity in the midst of diversity, a diverse people with diverse gifts. Uh, the church, in other words, should be a place that can handle a little bit of disagreement, right? a little bit of debate. And that disagreement and that debate should never come at the cost of, of unity, except when the gospel becomes compromised. That's when it becomes an issue. And we see this in this text because Paul uses this word spirit. Spirit. Um, what does he say? Here of you, they're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And often this, this word spirit is translated, as it is in the ESV, as a lowercase s, spirit, as in some kind of like human spirit with one spirit. But I don't, I don't think that's right. I follow you know, Gordon Fee and some other commentators who see this as actually the Holy Spirit, capital S, spirit. And of course, that still means the community is going to display a common life that's unified, but it, it shows us what is the ground and what is the source of that unity, which is always to be the Holy Spirit. Because if we've all been filled with the one spirit, we've been enabled to live in a manner that accords with that one spirit, a unified life. And that unified life reflects back and bears witness to the character of that one spirit, which is unified. So to be unified in one spirit means to recognize that it's the spirit that gives the church unity. It's not us who give the church unity. The spirit is the one who's in control at the helm of the church. Our job is simply to live our lives in a manner that's worthy of the fact that we have been made united, made one in Christ, that we've been made worthy in Christ already. See, standing firm in one spirit, Paul is saying, standing firm, striving side by side, also means, if we keep going on in this text, it also means not being frightened in anything by our opponents. That's the next part. And he's continuing on this athletic or this military image with opponents. And the question that always comes up is, who are these opponents that Paul's talking about in this text? 
Um, later on in the letter, he's going to mention uh, some people in the community who are preaching a different gospel from Paul. People within the community who are trying to distort the gospel. But that's not who Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking about people who are outside of the church. Okay? People who are hostile to the gospel. That's who he's talking about. And you can see why this would be. I mean, if the Philippians are living in a Roman colony, but they're not living worthily as Roman citizens, they're living as citizens of heaven, this would be threatening to a group of people who live with Caesar as Lord. And you can see how threatening this was to them, because in the book of Acts, when we have Paul's account of being in this town, in Philippi, the city, and setting up this church, him and Silas, they get dragged before the rulers in the marketplace. They get stripped, they get beaten with rods, they get thrown into prison. And that's how they're treated, for healing a girl who's possessed by a demon. And the Philippians would remember this. They would, they would have a memory of this situation where Paul is dragged before and beaten with rods and thrown into prison. But nevertheless, he tells them in this passage, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. And the word he uses here for frightened is a, is a great word. It's a really rare word that Paul uses. And it's often used to describe startling horses into a stampede. Okay. You can imagine that kind of an image. And I think it's an awesome image because it is absolutely the way that we start to act in the face of hostility, in the face of someone coming to you and saying what it is that you believe is worthless. I mean, this is sometimes our natural tendency, to run about, to bump into each other, to scatter, to try to get away as fast as we can. And even though we can praise God that we don't live in a city or a country uh, that's openly hostile to Christianity, a place where we get dragged re regularly before the court, stripped, beaten, thrown into prison, I mean, that doesn't happen in Canada. We're thankful for that. But the gospel is still offensive in this place. You're still going to run up against opposition. But what Paul is saying is that living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, it doesn't matter what the opposition is. We are not to be afraid of it. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel, standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, means not being frightened in anything by these opponents. And the first time I heard this or read this, I was actually discouraged by this because that's not my experience of this. I mean, I'm, I am frightened by these things. I'm not a terribly bold person, in fact. I'm quite reserved. I'm not really comfortable living in the face of these things. So when Paul says not being frightened, it's like, well, that's not my experience of this. But then it clicked. As Paul's going through this, uh, this is already something that's been, that's been made mine in Christ. I've already been made worthy in Christ. I've already been made one with you all in the Spirit. And now he's saying you've already been made not to be frightened in this. Uh, there's only one command in this entire four verses, and it's that first one. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. The rest of this stuff is just a description of what is already yours in Christ. It's not a command to do this. And Paul's saying that these things, these things are already ours. Spiritual, spiritual unity for the gospel, fearlessness in the face of opposition. And these things are going to be a clear indication, he says, if we go on, uh, that our opponents are going to end in destruction. That's what he says. And let's read it. And not frighten in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. But this doesn't mean that we're going to have victory in this life. That's not what Paul's saying. 
both of these terms, destruction and salvation that Paul uses are, are eschatological terms, which is just a big word that means stuff that's going to happen in the future when Jesus returns. You're not promised destruction and salvation now in the present. These are promises for the future. And furthermore, these aren't things that we're to boast about either, destruction and salvation. Because we can't forget, as we've just been talking about, these are things that have been made mine in Christ. I didn't earn them. I didn't fix them in myself. They have been gifted to me as a result of believing in Christ. Now, that's not to say either that the Christian life is going to be easy. In fact, the opposite is true here. It's going to be hard, Paul's saying. You're going to have opponents. You're going to be surrounded by people who despise the gospel, who despise you for centering your life on Jesus and his teachings, who despise you for refusing to admit that you can save yourself. But Paul's saying that by standing firm in the face of this, unified in the spirit and not frightened in anything, this is going to be a sign of your salvation, I guess. Huh? I mean, how does that work? What does that actually mean? That's a very odd phrase, it seems. And it results in what I think is actually the crux of this whole passage, verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. These verses are an explanation of why Paul thinks that your standing firm, your striving side by side, your not being frightened, are going to be assigned to them of their destruction and assigned to you of your salvation. It seems a bit of an odd explanation, doesn't it? But what Paul is saying is that suffering for the sake of the gospel is actually God's grace to us. Suffering is a gift, in fact, is what Paul is saying. So maybe better would be translated this way. To you, it's been graciously given by God on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, and then we might expect Paul to say something lofty like, but also to be raised with him or to be seated with him in the heavenly places. But he doesn't say that. He says, to you, it's been graciously given by God on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. To suffer for his sake. What Paul's saying is that it's a privilege to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Suffering is, in fact, a gift, Paul is saying. And if anything in this passage is strange to us, it's this, it's that phrase, that suffering is a gift. I mean, the entire pharmaceutical and medical community is oriented in a totally other direction. Suffering is not a gift. Suffering is uh, something horrible, something to be avoided at all costs. Are you in pain? Are you in slight discomfort? Are you having a sort of tickling sensation? Well, we have a pill that we have for that. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Jerry Seinfeld. You're getting like my two favorite things in this sermon, Top Gear and Jerry Seinfeld, side by side. And Jerry Seinfeld has this great bit about painkillers that he did, and I'm telling you for the last time, and he says, no one wants anything less than extra strength. Now, extra strength is the bare minimum, okay? Strength is out. You can't even get strength anymore. And some people aren't satisfied with extra. They want maximum strength. Give me the maximum strength painkiller. Give me the maximum allowable human dosage. Figure out what's going to kill me, and then back it off a little bit. I mean, I love that. I love Jerry Seinfeld. But this is our culture, isn't it? I mean, let's, you've got a pain. Let's, let's medicate it. And if suffering can be avoided, why wouldn't we avoid suffering? And to an extent, I agree with that. I mean, if you've got pain that's actually affecting your functioning, impacting the way you go about your daily life, don't be an idiot. I mean, take a painkiller. Like, you don't need to be a hero about it. 
But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is not making a claim about all suffering in this regard. We're going to go through all sorts of suffering simply as a result of being human, right? This is the sort of suffering that's universal to the human condition. Paper cuts, you know, sprained ankles, broken arms, cut knees, car accidents, train derailments, plane crashes, uh, earthquakes, tsunamis, flooding, fire, uh, the death of a friend, the death of a parent, the death of a spouse, the death of a child. I mean, these are all universal things that we suffer. And they're significant forms of suffering, some of them really significant. And it doesn't mean that Christ cannot be glorified and cannot use these situations of suffering. But this isn't the kind of suffering that Paul is talking about here. He's specifically talking about suffering that's taken on for the sake of the gospel. The sake of following Christ. And this can come in all sorts of ways. For many in the world, it, it is meant in the past and still means for lots of people in the world. Martyrdom, the real possibility of being killed for following Jesus. And while this often, often happens directly, for being targeted for being a Christian, it also happens indirectly sometimes, putting yourself into situations with increased risk for the sake of the gospel. Preston and Deanna have a friend who about a month ago was on a mission trip in Nicaragua and was murdered while she was down there. This is putting yourself in harm's way for the sake of the gospel, being in a place that is dangerous for the sake of the gospel, and not being frightened by that is what Paul is saying. And this happens in other ways too. I mean, we have friends who are right now back in South Africa. Uh, he's studying at Region, and they're contemplating moving back to South Africa to do ministry there. He, feel, he feels called to do ministry in that place, and not separated off in a really safe community, but in the midst of the people. And that means the real possibility of danger, of suffering for the sake of the gospel. And while they probably won't be targeted for being Christians, it just means living in a dangerous place because you feel called to that sort of ministry. That's suffering for the sake of the gospel. And thankfully for us in Canada, I mean, that's not usually a real risk for us. But there's ways in which we all suffer for the gospel. I was talking to a, another friend on Friday night. We have a mutual friend who's finding it really hard to get employment right now in his field because he refuses to promote himself in the way that's normal in that field. And he doesn't promote himself in that way because he doesn't see it, and I think rightfully so, as in line with the kind of character that Christ is, call, is calling us to as followers. The same can be said of artists who miss out on work because they refuse to promote themselves in a way that's usual in that field. It's another form of suffering. Even to treat money the way that Christ has called us to, which is radical, can mean suffering. It can mean missing out on things that our culture tells you that you need or that you must have. All of this is suffering for the sake of the gospel. And of course, some of it is going is to mean more suffering than other things. But it doesn't mean that we can suddenly say, well, oh, I'm suffering more than Ashley and Jake. Look how great I am. That's not what Paul's saying. Suffering is never something to boast about. It's, I mean, our boast is only in Christ and Christ crucified, Paul says. And this kind of attitude, this kind of boasting and suffering can mean that we actually try to seek it out, seek out suffering, which is something we should never do for the sake of the gospel. We seek Christ, the Bible tells us. That's our primary and our only responsibility in everything we do, is seeking Christ. And whether or not that results in suffering is pretty much out of our hands. Paul says that this kind of suffering, suffering for the sake of the gospel, is a gift. And a gift is never something that you can pursue. It's not something you can go and chase down. We pursue Christ 
We never pursue suffering. I think the quote from Lewis on the front of the bulletin is, is really helpful in this regard, but it's also a really challenging quote. He says, the real problem is not why some humble, pious, believing people suffer, but why some do not. I mean, that's the real problem. Am I suffering for the sake of the gospel? It's an uncomfortable question to ask. And many of you can probably answer yes to this gospel. And the follow-up question would then be, do you see that as a gift? Do you see your suffering for the sake of the gospel as a gift? Do you know that Christ is with you in the midst of that suffering? Do I know that I stand unified with my brothers and sisters around the world who are also suffering for the sake of the gospel? And if you're suffering in any way as a result of your faith, this passage should be really encouraging to you. As much as you may not like to hear it, and you may not like it, your suffering is a gracious gift of God to you, Paul is saying. And your standing firm in the Spirit is evidence of the salvation that he's working out in you. But we're not all going to be able to answer yes to the question of, are you suffering for the sake of the gospel? Many of us are going to answer no. And then we have to follow up with another question. We have to ask the Lord, why? Why am I not suffering for the sake of the gospel? Now, remember this. I already said we never seek out suffering. We seek Christ. And whether or not we suffer as a result of that is pretty much out of our hands. We can't pursue it, but we can try to avoid it. Okay? We can't pursue it, but we can try to avoid it. If we know that identifying ourselves as Christians might result in us being left out or thought foolish, perhaps we just won't mention that in that particular setting. If I think that reading my Bible on the bus might mean I get some weird looks, then maybe I'll just go on my phone instead. If I think that praying in a public space, in a restaurant or in a, in a cafe, might make people think that I'm a bit of a weirdo, then maybe we just won't pray together today. If I know that following Christ and his call to live and work in a certain place with a certain group of people might mean that I'm going to suffer, well, perhaps I didn't actually hear that as my call. Maybe that wasn't quite what I heard. If I know that giving, tithing to the church, means that I'm going to go without stuff, well, maybe I just won't give what I feel like I'm called to give, right? I mean, these are all ways in which we suffer, and these are just a few examples. I mean, we try to avoid this in unimaginably creative ways. Just, I mean, think about it. But maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's more than just trying to avoid suffering. Perhaps the faith that we testify to in word and deed isn't actually substantial enough to provoke any opposition. Whether that's opposition from our families, opposition from our friends, or even from the government. This is what one commentator, Stephen Fowle, says about this passage. I suspect that it is much more the case that the common life of most churches is so inadequate to the gospel and our disunity so debilitating that the state has nothing to fear from us. If that's true, that's a damning critique of the church. And I fear that it might be. I fear that it is true. But I pray that it wouldn't be true. I pray that we would hear Paul's words here and that we would repent. That we would repent of having failed to live a life worthy of the gospel. Repent of our disunity. Repent of our fear. Repent of having done anything we can to avoid suffering for the sake of the gospel. And I pray that when we do repent and when the suffering comes, which it will, that we will see that for the gift that it really is. 